1: All year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer.
0: What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at ChoiceHotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Deblina Chakraborty and I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we couldn't let Mardi Gras pass without doing a podcast on it, especially because, as you know, Sarah, I used to live and work in Mobile, Alabama, which is said to be the site of America's first Mardi Gras celebration. So just a little piece of trivia for you there. It may come as a surprise to a lot of people because although it may have been the first in Mobile, The holiday is most often associated with the city we're going to focus on today, which is New Orleans, Louisiana.
3: And that's, yeah, that's the big one, obviously. Yeah, you've
2: been to that one, right?
3: I I have been to that one. I I went... Been twice, but I went a couple years ago, and I remember one of the funniest things was like checking flight information at the New Orleans airport and seeing that Zulu coconuts were acceptable for like <laughs> that month only.
2: Well, they have to be. That's one of the best prizes, it one is. of the best throws to Although get. Scary too. A little scary, yeah, but that's a topic for another day. I think today we just want to focus a little bit on a different event that happened on a very specific Mardi Gras many years ago, but back to New Orleans and its Mardi Gras celebration. It's been going on for so long and is such a big part of the city's cultural identity and its economy. I mean, it draws thousands of tourists every single year. Like me. Like you. It's really hard to imagine the city purposely canceling it for any reason at all. Yet that's exactly what happened in 1979 when a police strike, of all things, brought Mardi Gras festivities to a grinding halt, deterred tourists and cast kind of a shadow over New Orleans' first black mayor's first Mardi Gras in office.
3: So, yeah, we're just going to take a little look into why that happened in the first place, why a police strike at Mardi Gras of all times, and also take a look at um, what caused the strife between the city's administration and its police department in the first place and how that led to the Mardi Gras cancellation. And this is kind of an interesting part, but we're going to look into why some locals still refer to the Mardi Gras of 1979 as the best Mardi Gras ever. We were not being ironic with the title of this episode, some people think it really is the best. Yeah, but first, of course, as we always do,
2: we'll give you a little background on New Orleans Mardi Gras, which is widely known as the greatest free show on Earth. And now, if you're only familiar with Mardi Gras as this big, huge, raucous party, you may be surprised to learn that the celebration actually has its roots in Catholicism. Carnival, as Mardi Gras is sometimes known, begins on Epiphany or Twelfth Night in early January and lasts until Lent. And Pope Gregory the Thirteenth is the one who actually had it declared a holiday – an official holiday in 1582. And the actual Mardi Gras Day, known as Fat Tuesday, is considered the one last day to kind of party Let and loose. get your debauchery in before Lent begins.
3: Yeah, before Ash Wednesday. Um, and it's celebrated not just in New Orleans and Mobile, too, obviously. It's celebrated all over the world. Some of the big celebrations are in Rio. There's one in Sydney. Lots of people have fun Mardi Gras parties.
2: Definitely. But how did it get to New Orleans? Well, historical accounts about that are a little bit sketchy as to the exact year. But in general, Mardi Gras, most people think it may have been celebrated in New Orleans as early as 1718, which was the year that the city was founded. It was really small scale at that point, though. I mean, we're talking only wealthy high society folks in exclusive social clubs throwing exclusive but very elaborate and fancy society balls. Yeah, it's a, it's a party you're not invited to, probably. <laughs> right, it's a party we wouldn't be invited to. No editors allowed. And none of the parades or anything like that that they have today. Middle-class people marked also marked this holiday, but they marked the beginning of Lent by attending church services and having more small informal events.
3: Yeah, um, but... Starting around the 1800s, there was a new generation of wealthy people who weren't as interested in these really tiny, exclusive elite balls, and they started forming fraternal clubs, and these clubs did some of the parading that were that we associate with Mardi Gras today. Um, but it wasn't quite like the parades. It wasn't the big floats and the costumes and all of that. It, it was more like just meandering around and getting rowdy, causing trouble in the streets, just taking the party outside, essentially.
2: Right. So the first really big change to that came in 1857 when the Mystic Crew of Comus appeared on the scene. And this was kind of the intro to Mardi Gras as we know it. This was the first appearance of the more organized parade, the floats, the live music, the revelers in costume, and the ball that went along with it. So it was sort of the prototype for all the crews that came after that. And the 12th Night Revelers came soon after that in 1870, so you just started seeing more and more of Pied them up pop up. Crews. Mm-hmm. Rex debuted in 1872, which was a big deal because it introduced the first day parade, which really increased participation from, you know, various citizens. Kids could take part probably more, more because it was yeah, a little more respectable as opposed to that, you know, just meandering in the streets that you mentioned before. And it introduced a new king of carnival
3: to the event Um, that's a pretty big deal and then I think the same year the Knights of Momus made their debut so yeah we're having all of these crews that we still know today Uh, coming into existence and really forming Mardi Gras like we know it. But around the time that our story is going to take place, there was another really big change, probably the the first really big change in about a 100 years here. And it came out of the New Orleans hospitality industry. They were looking for ways to start making a little bit more money off of Mardi Gras by having bigger parades and balls that were less exclusive and celebrities involved, you know, really really figure out ways to draw uh, tourists to New Orleans.
2: Right. And so when they introduced Bacchus in 1969, that's exactly the purpose it served. It took place the Sunday before Mardi Gras. So it gave people a reason to kind of extend their stay in town. And it was the template for what would be known as the super crew. So it featured national celebrities. I think the first monarch was actor Danny Kaye. Huge dinner dances and several parades followed suit, several crews, I should say, followed suit after this, and Demian was one. Um, it used to be a small suburban parade, and it became one of these super crews around 1974. So this was kind of the state of New Orleans Mardi Gras around the time when Ernest Morial, who is also known as Dutch Morial, became mayor of the city in 1978. He was 49 when he took office, and he was the city's first black mayor, so pretty big deal at the time. And his resume was really impressive. He'd had, I think, previous careers as a local and ACP president, an assistant U.S. attorney, a state legislature, and a judge. And at the time, he seemed kind of like a long shot to win the election when he entered the mayoral race, but he ended up winning 95% of the black vote and 20% of the white vote, which made him the black elected official with the largest constituency in the South at the time.
3: Yeah, but obviously, with only 20% of the white vote, things were kind of shaky for him when he took office. And according to New Orleans magazine, he faced a lot of resentment from some whites who felt that they were losing their political power and. And even the carnival establishment, who, you know, they're sort of the elite whites of the city, or some of them, largely white, they were concerned how he would, quote, regard their social structure and tradition. So, yeah, a, a little tension coming in to this Mardi Gras.
2: And that was just one aspect of it. On the other hand, he had an even more pressing problem that was coming up, and that was a situation with the New Orleans Police Department. They'd been unhappy with their salaries and their whole benefits package for a while before Morial came to office. But he made matters worse in a couple of ways. One of those ways is that his first – one of his first official acts as mayor, I should say, was tax reform, which kind of sent a message to the police that – Whether it was true or not, it sent the message that he didn't really care so much about their economic plight at the time. The other thing that he did was that he chose a guy named James C. Parsons, who was formerly police chief in Birmingham, Alabama, as his superintendent of police. Now, Parsons was really qualified for his job, but the local police, they took this as kind of an affront because it kind of looked like the mayor had passed up other qualified people
3: within their department. Like none of them were good enough.
2: Right. And I think that's sort of how promotions had been done before in the department. Someone from within had been promoted up. So it was kind of a slap in the face.
3: Yeah. So he's obviously dealing with some problems in the police department. And one really important thing to keep in mind before we, we get into the, the later issues in this episode is that at this point, the city was definitely more on the side of the cops, more sympathetic to their plight than to the new guy, the new mayor.
2: So the situation escalated and talks of strikes started actually mid to late 1978 since the police unions were having trouble bringing the city to the table to even talk about the things they were concerned about. So just to give you a little background before we go too much into the whole strike discussion, there were two unions at the time, two police unions. One was the Fraternal Order of Police, the FOP. This was made uh, mostly of veteran police and retirees. And then on the other hand, there was the Policemen's Association of New Orleans, P-A-N-O. And... The PANO had more members in the FOP, and those numbers kind of continued to grow as the situation progressed. And they were led by a patrolman named Vincent Bruno, who had recently been a part of getting the PANO affiliated with the Teamsters. And this is one reason that Morial really didn't want to negotiate with them. He didn't like that association with the Teamsters very much. The P.A.N.O., basically their goal was they wanted to win sole bargaining agent status with the city. So they wanted to be the ones that the city was bargaining with, making decisions with rather than the F.O.P., So they kind of had the same goals in mind, I guess, both unions, but it was sort of a little struggle between them as to who was actually the one coming to the table.
3: And a different kind of membership, too, it seems. Mm -hmm. Um, But by the beginning of 1979, the city was conceding to some of their requests. They approved a 15% pay raise for the department, but the police weren't satisfied with that. And part of the reason was because... Their benefits, including sick leave and vacation time, had been slashed at the same time. So it was it was essentially just canceling out what they had lost. Uh, so PANO started to seriously plan a walkout at that point because they weren't happy with the situation. And it took place on February eighth, nineteen seventy-nine, and it lasted for thirty hours and was considered pretty successful. There were more than one thousand policemen out of fifteen hundred who participated. So a pretty big crowd. And a lot of them wore t-shirts that had the slogan, had the police seal with the slogan, take this job and shove it. So you can imagine that made a big impression on the city. Yeah, they were not messing around. And they continued to get support.
2: Many FOP members actually switched over and joined the PANO side. And in addition to that, there were some commanding officers, including Parsons, who refused to take disciplinary action on the strikers. Which
3: so Presumably, he's like the mayor's own guy. Exactly.
2: So, again, a lot of support coming in here. Another problem that presented itself for the mayor was that Mardi Gras, which is typically celebrated for two weeks prior to Fat Tuesday, was fast approaching. So his hand was kind of forced in the situation, and he ended up agreeing to a few things, including the following recognition of P.A.N.O. as the exclusive bargaining agent with the police, the commencement of immediate negotiations for the things that the police wanted, amnesty for all the strikers, restoration of leave benefits, and double time and a half pay for six holidays. So that's just a few of the things. I think there were a few more, but the police, suffice to say, considered this a pretty big victory. Yeah, this was a huge coup for them. But the problem was that there wasn't an official contract made at this point, and they really needed to get something in writing to make sure that it wasn't just going to be all smoke and mirrors. Well, and
3: to make sure that the mayor actually had the power to promise them these things.
2: Right, that was also something that was In question, did the mayor actually have the power to promise things like pay increases? They weren't sure, so they wanted to get it all down and make it official. So they gave the city a week deadline, made the deadline February 16th, which was a Friday, or they would strike again. As kind of a backup, the Teamsters flew in a guy named Joseph Valenti from Detroit. And this just stirred the pot even more because, for one thing, he was an outsider. And for another thing, I mean, this is kind of stereotyping, we know. But at the time, people thought, okay, he's got an Italian name and the Teamsters, they have these sort of mob affiliations. So it just it didn't look good. And more than that, I think it just gave the city administration some more fuel to not really cooperate with their requests.
3: Yeah, that they thought bringing in this outsider was even necessary. Um, but the negotiations didn't speed up with this Valenti guy present. In fact, they go really, really slowly. And Mardi Gras celebrations were set to kick off that weekend. So Morial asked for a quote, cooling down period until after Mardi Gras. Like, please, can we all just put our differences aside us and like get through Mardi Gras and then get back to the table? But PANO wouldn't agree to that cooling off period. They wanted all their issues to be resolved before the festival, before the the big weekend began. And they wanted the unresolved issues to be submitted to binding arbitration, which Basically meant that if the two sides couldn't come to an agreement together, there would be a third party who would decide the issues, decide the outcome of the issues, and each of the other sides would be legally bound to honor that decision. And, of course, Morial was not going to have that. Um, I mean, who would this third party be in the first place? It just seemed like too big of a risk for the city to take.
2: Yeah, so Morial kind of drew the line in the sand there. And a second strike did, in fact, begin that Saturday, February 17th. And Morial ended up having to cancel that first big weekend of Mardi Gras celebrations, that first weekend of parades that everyone was so looking forward to. He still, at that point, had hopes, though, that the next week of celebrations would continue, but they had a lot of things to work out.
3: Yeah, and the PANO was still slow to negotiate, even though it was the group that originally wanted to This whole process up. So um, Mayor Morial had to call in the National Guard about 1,100 troops and some of the state police, too, to supplement the non-striking police force, because obviously you can't even have a canceled Mardi Gras with no police. There's still going to be people in New Orleans milling about. You still need police around. And I think that they they canceled
2: time off. They made them work 12 hour shifts. So it, it was a lot to take on for those who weren't part of the strike. As they were negotiating, Morial had to start announcing parade cancellations one day at a time, which was sort of torturous for the city. In fact, in a New Orleans magazine story, writer Liz Scott refers to it, I think, in a really interesting way. She says, to the parade-loving citizenry, it was like Chinese water torture.
3: Yeah, Just every day. one at a time. One falls. And things got dramatic, too, I guess, because the police side was trying to escalate the situation to hopefully resolve it before Mardi Gras. But Valenti and Bruno started going on TV and uh, showing up on the front pages of the newspapers, and they did some stuff that really took things too far. Um, The union vowed to stay off work, quote, until doomsday, if necessary. They made it clear that they didn't give a hoot about Mardi Gras. Um, They were looking to resolve these issues. And they passed out 100,000 leaflets to tourists at some of the big points of entry to the city uh, saying that New Orleans was unsafe. You know, turn back. Don't bother going to Mardi Gras because we're not there to protect you. So now not only
2: were there negotiations just incidentally preventing Mardi Gras from taking place, they were actively going out and discouraging tourists, discouraging dollars from coming into the city and actively going out there and preventing Mardi Gras from happening.
3: Yeah, and Bruno then took it to the next level for real. In the heat of the moment, he told a reporter that if the police didn't get their way, they would, quote, wreck the city. So nobody likes to hear that no. from the guy representing the the police group and he apologized later but it was it was really too late and by this point public sentiment did a complete 180. They were no longer on the side of the police and and trying to support their requests. They turned against the police because everyone was affected by what was going on, either financially, you know, you have people running hotels and restaurants and they're expecting all those tourists to come in, or personally, because Mardi Gras is fun, and people who live in New Orleans often work long and hard to get ready for these parades, planning their costumes and and working on it. So for all of those people who are planning on attending, and for celebs, two celebrities were involved. Don't forget about them. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was Ron Howard. Ron Howard. Yes, he was apparently inconvenienced by the the strike.
2: Ron Howard, Frankie Avalon, the rock group KISS, all these people were supposed to be reigning over various
3: parades that year and they didn't get to come. So, yeah, people are understandably not very happy about what the police is doing at this point. And so Mardi Gras organizers do something that's really interesting. They decide that they weren't going to take this lying down anymore.
2: No, it was actually in a really famous gesture, the carnival captains, they literally all got up and stood behind the mayor as he announced on Tuesday, February 20th, that all remaining Mardi Gras parades would be canceled, the entire thing, the entire celebration. One of the crew captains said, we're not going to let Mardi Gras be held hostage by the Teamsters. It is wrong to use Mardi Gras as blackmail in this dispute. The same procedure can be used every year, and we're not going to let our organizations be puppets in such a plan.
3: So with that, the police were out of their bargaining chip. Mardi Gras was not going to be used by anyone. And the mayor and the administration really got the upper hand. And the strike lasted for about 16 days total. But the anti-strike sentiment remained really high. And once Mardi Gras was over and the police didn't have that leverage anymore, the whole thing really fizzled out. Um, I mean, the city, the city had the control.
2: Yeah, if there was a winner, the city certainly turned out to be the winner in the situation, which, I don't know, we were kind of talking about it before. It was sort of unfortunate because the police did their – what they wanted was valid. They had
3: legitimate complaints. They really did.
2: But then the way that things turned out, once they made Mardi Gras part of their plan for leverage, their bargaining chip, as you said, it sort of all fell apart.
3: Definitely. And as for Mardi Gras itself, I mean, officially canceled – That means it's ruined, right? I mean, some people estimate that the city lost $6 million because of the cancellation. And again, this is 1979, so that's a lot.
2: (laughs) But the Mardi Gras spirit and celebration somehow managed to live on, which is really interesting. The, The old line crews on one hand, Comus, Rex, Momus, Proteus, They didn't parade. They said if they couldn't parade in the city, they didn't want to parade at all. But there were a few others, like Endymion, that moved their parades to the suburbs. But also, on Fat Tuesday, while there weren't any official parades in the city, it was just this gorgeous, warm day. And it turned out that a lot of locals really did just throw on costumes and head down to the French Quarter, and they partied anyway. Extra hard, apparently. Extra hard. Dancing, second lining in the streets. And it was almost sort of like some people describe it as an act of defiance toward the strikers.
3: Yeah, and probably just letting loose, cutting some of those tensions that had been so high in the city for the past few weeks. And um, incidentally, there were a few other acts of defiance. (laughs) Um, There's a rumor that in a voodoo shop on bourbon, Joe Valenti hex dollies were for sale, um, already stuck full of hat pins. So could get your revenge, I guess, on the Teamster. Yeah,
2: we giggled a little bit, but I don't know if that's really funny. Actually, it's kind of frightening.
3: <laughs> yeah, maybe not so funny after
2: all. So because of all the fun that they had partying in the streets hexing. and hexing people, um, And, of course, the lack of tourists in there. That was another aspect of it. Some did call it the best Mardi Gras ever. In the Scott article, she actually describes it. And, again, I really love the way she says this. One of those, she describes it as one of those charming little weddings with just immediate family and close friends.
3: So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a good time. And I I can see how it would be a drag to lose all your money if you were maybe in the hotel business. But... It also does still sound like a really great party. It does. And as for whether
2: it was the best Mardi Gras ever or not, I think maybe a lot of people now would call the 2006 Mardi Gras the best, one of the best ones ever, because that was the one that happened just a few months after Katrina. And it was sort of, you know, proof that the city was alive and kicking. Yeah, Yeah, resurgence and restoration. And both of these situations, though, seem to kind of really reflect the enduring spirit, you know, not to sound hokey, but the enduring spirit of natives of New Orleans. Definitely. Okay, well, that's the end of this Mardi Gras story. But if you have your own Mardi Gras story, G-rated of course, that you would like to share with us, please feel free to email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also look us up on Facebook and we're at Twitter at Missed in History.
3: And we also have an article on Mardi Gras, conveniently enough, if you're looking to do a little bit of light reading before you get in the car or board a plane or just go outside your door and enjoy the celebrations. It's called How Mardi Gras Works, and you can find it by searching for Mardi Gras on our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, Click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.
1: Long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer